I just want to say first off a, a very heartfelt welcome to our visitors. I see that we have several amongst us. We are very grateful for your presence this morning. You are our honored guests. We thank you for being with us. Also want to encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2 because the man standing before you is merely a man. Sometimes I make mistakes. God doesn't make mistakes, so take his word for it and not mine. So please follow along in your Bibles, beginning this morning at Acts 2, when we get there, which will be a few minutes. We speak a lot in the Churches of Christ about Acts chapter 2, and we do so for good reason. In Acts chapter 1, what has happened is that Jesus has come back after his resurrection from the dead. He spent 40 days with his disciples explaining to them the things of the kingdom. And in Acts chapter 1, after this time, Jesus ascends back to heaven. He tells his disciples to go back to Jerusalem and to wait for the promise that will be theirs. And so they do. They go back, and there's about 120 of them there and, uh, in the upper room or, or when they go back, and they choose a, a, an apostle to take the place of Judas, a man by the name of Matthias. And then when the day of Pentecost comes, the 12 apostles are there together in the upper room, and all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit falls upon them in miraculous measure, just these, these 12 men, as the scripture bears out later, that signs and wonders were taking place through the apostles. And so, as we get down to verse 5, after that happens, these apostles begin speaking in tongues, gets everybody's attention, people start listening, there's pilgrims there from all over the, all over the, the world, if you will, at that time. And... Peter preaches to them the first gospel message. What we mean by that is, Peter preaches to them the first sermon about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, about how to become a member of his saved group known as the church. And we find out that indeed, as he closes off his sermon that day in, in verse 36, assuring them that this Jesus whom they had crucified, God had made both Lord and Christ, which means Lord and Messiah, they're very distraught. In verse 37, they ask, well, what are we going to do? And in verse 38, he tells them how to be saved, how to be forgiven of their sins. He goes on to talk to them about that. We see that around 3,000 of them did what he said and were saved. We see the church blossom from that point forward. We see how... They, those that are saved devote themselves to the apostles' doctrine and how God, in verse 47, continues to add to the church daily those who are being saved that way. It is indeed where the church of Christ, the church that we see in the scriptures, was born its first day, as it were, where it was established, where it originated. But what we don't discuss a lot as we talk about Acts chapter 2 is where those 3,000 people actually came from. Who they actually were previously. And hence, what brought them to Jerusalem in the first place so that on this day they would wind up by the providence of God hearing 
and obeying and being saved by that sermon that Peter preached in that time and in that place. And usually when we do stop to discuss those folks that were there, beginning in verse 5, when we do discuss that section of the text from verses 5 to 12, we usually focus a lot more on the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues, which the apostles were doing to the masses that were gathered there, more than we do on the people themselves who each heard the gospel preached to them in their own native language, as it talks about in verses 5 through 12. So what I'd like for us to focus on today as we start out especially, well, throughout most of the sermon indeed, is that group of faithful, steadfast people to whom he was talking. That, that group of people who had a faithful, steadfast, uh, an utter and unyielding devotion and commitment to their own religious beliefs and convictions at that point. You see, these that were gathered there on the day of Pentecost were Jews who were very, very devoted men. They were committed. They were committed to their cause. And we're going to discuss just how committed they were, how devoted they were. They were devoted as their families had been devoted in many cases for generations and generations. We would note as we start in Acts chapter 2, in verse 5, who were these men? Well, it says in Acts chapter 2 and verse 5, and there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. Devout. These were not people off the street who didn't love God. These were people who had come to Jerusalem and were staying there in Jerusalem for this feast time of the Jews. They were extremely dedicated. They were devout the word devout here, according to Strong's, means reverencing God, pious. When the Bible uses the word devout from the, the Greek word here that is thus translated devout, it signifies an incredibly strong devotion to one's convictions. In fact, this word is only used two other times in the entire New Testament, and in both of those cases, it signals an incredible, deep commitment to that which you believe. For example, it's used in Luke 2 and verse 25, when it says, And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. This was a devout, convicted man, and as you read that account there in Luke chapter 2, you see just how committed he was to what he believed in, and in fact, the Holy Spirit was upon him, the Bible says. Strong, deeply committed. To what he believed. The second time that we see this same word from the Greek translated in the New Testament, it is translated as devout in Acts chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where it says, devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him, even as Saul made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and with women and committing them to prison. I don't have a new mouth, you know, I've used it before, but this morning for some reason, uh, anyway. As you recall in Acts chapter 8, verses 2 and 3, where it talks about devout men carrying Stephen off, 
burying him. What's just happened there in Acts chapter 7 is that Stephen has stood up, he's preached the gospel, and they've stoned him to death for it. That's what they've done. And about this time, Saul enters house after house and, and begins persecuting and taking prisoner, men and women, those who belong to the church. So when it says devout men carried off Stephen and buried him, that took a lot of faith and courage. In those times, that would be like some of the rescue workers in Ukraine today after, after buildings and apartments are bombed out and, and they know that another bomb can fall at any moment and these rescue workers go in and try to find people that are still surviving. That's a very, very difficult dangerous job because at any moment another shell could come in. And, and right here, those men in Acts chapter 8 that were devout that buried Stephen, they could be next to be killed by those against Christians of Stephen's commitment. So, as we think about that, we think about that term devout, Acts 2 and verse 5, that's what these men in Jerusalem were. And notice where they were from. They were devout men from every nation under heaven. Pentecost, that they were there for, was one of three yearly feasts that the Jews were commanded by God to come and appear before his presence for. We know this from the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 34, verses 22 and 3, and Deuteronomy chapter 16, verses 10 through 16. Now, there were certain exemptions for certain times that certain Jews could get, didn't have to come to all three of these under certain circumstances, but during this time, Luke, the writer of Acts, is going to go on to tell us where these men were from specifically, these devout men. And as we think about how devout they were, I believe that as we read down through the list of where they were from, it will give us some insight into that. Begin with me, follow along with me in verse 6 in your own Bibles, please. When this sound occurred, that is, the sound from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, where the Holy Spirit came upon them, sound of a rushing wind. When this sound occurred, Acts 2, 6, the multitude came together. They were confused because everyone heard them, that is, the apostles, speak in his own language. They were all amazed and, and they marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? They're, they're looking at these apostles and say, wait a minute, these guys are all from the Galilean region. Well, how is it, verse 8, that we hear each in our own language in which we were born? Hey, wait a minute, these guys are just civil Galileans. How is it as they're preaching the gospel we from all over the known world are, are hearing what they're saying, but we're hearing it in our own native language. How, how is that possible, is what they're asking. Then he goes on to give a list. Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. We usually blow right over that. Not today. Because, again, I ask, how devout were they? We can get a good measure of how devout they were by just how far they had been willing to travel 
in order to get there to Jerusalem for this religious holiday. Or if I could go back and quote sort of the title from last week's lesson, how far were they willing to go for God? How far were they willing to travel for God? And I think that says a lot about one's devotion to God, especially as we're about to see here. According to conformingtojesus.com, I want us to consider where they had traveled in from as we just read about in verses 6 through 11. Consider with me. The Parthians, Medes, and Elamites of verse 9 of Acts 2 were devout Jewish men living in what is now present-day Iran. Parthia, and you can see these up there, Parthia was located in the northeast, Media in the northwest, and Elam in the south, just north of the Persian Gulf. At the time of the book of Acts, all these regions were part of the Parthian Empire. They were most likely descendants of those who had been deported after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and they never went back to live in Israel, but they continued to make their home in those regions. But there again, that being the case, and then being Jews who were devout and devoted to God, they would travel back for this celebration as God had commanded. Continuing from that website, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, as mentioned in verse 9, were devout Jewish men living in what is modern-day Iraq, Kuwait, and western Syria, around the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. At the time of the book of Acts, Mesopotamia was a Roman province. Obviously, those living in Judea, as mentioned in verse 9, were devout Jewish men living in and around Jerusalem, which is obviously till, still today, present-day Israel and Palestine. From verses 9 and 10 of Acts chapter 2, those dwelling in Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia were devout men, devout Jews, living in what is modern-day Turkey. Cappadocia was located in eastern central Turkey, Pontus in the northeast, and obviously where these white backgrounds with the red letters are, those are the areas. You can see up there Pontus just above where it says Pontus, and you know, you may not necessarily recognize this map from the first century the way it was drawn, but if you look up there above Pontus, if you were to take where they are located on the southern side of the Black Sea and you were to go to the northern shore of the Black Sea just a little west, you come to a country that's been in the news a lot lately called Ukraine on the Black Sea. Pontus was on the south of Pontus of the Black Sea. Asia was in the west on the Mediterranean. Phrygia in central Turkey, and Pamphylia on the southern central coast. These were all Roman provinces at the time of the book of Acts. Verse 10 tells us about those dwelling in Egypt. These were obviously devout Jewish men living in what is today, modern-day Egypt. That one's not hard to figure out. Those dwelling in parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene in verse 10 were devout Jewish men living near the city of Cyrene, which is located near present-day Shahat in Libya. Then you get this little tidbit. It tells us here in the scriptures there were visitors from Rome. Hmm. 
These were devout Jewish men and proselytes who had converted living in Rome, at that time capital of the Roman Empire and obviously today the capital of Italy. And then finally we have Cretans and Arabs mentioned in verse 11. These were devout Jews living on the island of Crete in the Mediterranean Sea, which of course you can see right there, as well as devout Jews living in the Arabian Peninsula, present-day Saudi Arabia, and perhaps other countries in that region. So, just how devout were they? I ask again. And again, I say, I think we can tell by how far they were willing to go for God. Consider with me. I looked up the distance that they had to travel from Rome to Jerusalem to be there this day as it's recorded in the scriptures. The distance, 1,434 miles. 1,434 miles was the figure the internet gave me. Okay? So, let's just try to put this in terms we understand. That these men were willing to travel 1,434 miles to be at this feast. Let, let's, let's try to figure out what level of devotion it would take to do that. Well, it would be like there being a week-long gospel meeting which God had commanded that Christians had to be at in, let's say, Lee, Massachusetts. Lee, Massachusetts is the first town you come to in Massachusetts when you cross, come across from New York. And Lee, Massachusetts from Shoto, according to Google Maps, is 1,436 miles, only two miles further than the reading I got from Rome to Jerusalem. But look at the bright side. If we all had to go to that, we were commanded to go to that, at least we wouldn't have to cross the sea to get there, right? But think about this. Think about if God commanded us all to have to be at that week-long gospel meeting in Lee, Massachusetts with no sea navigation, and we were told that we could not use any modern forms of transportation, no planes, no buses, no personal vehicles. We could only use things that were no newer than they had in the first century AD. Where'd we go? Now, before we answer that, let us remember that this week with our nice, fast-moving cars and heated seats and steering wheels and Bluetooth and all the creature comforts that we have, we have two gospel meetings roughly an hour away. How many of us will go? And yet these men were willing to travel from Rome that far, 1,400 miles. You want to talk about devout? Let me tell you something. That is devout, okay? They were committed to God. But here's the thing. As devout, this is, this is mind-blowing. As devout as they were, they were now this, this religion that they were devoted to, this religion that they were committed and convicted to, to that extent that their families had been for generations, that religion that they were devoted to was unknown to them, now a dead-end religion, 
the rituals of which could never save them. Isn't that something? After Christ's death, and he did away with the old covenant, the, 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 the standards, the feasts, and everything that they were committed to in their Jewish religion were nailed to the cross. They could no longer say They were so devoted and convicted to those. These were the same sorts of things that the Apostle Paul would write about in places like Galatians 2, verses 16 and 21, when he wrote that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, for by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. That's verse 16 of Galatians 2. Galatians 2.21 says, if righteousness comes through the law, Christ died in vain. Galatians 3.10 and 11 says, as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all the things written in the book of the law to do them. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. Now understand, he's talking about the law specifically, talking about you know, the old law and the Ten Commandments, but, but these feast days, tells us in Colossians 2, that, that these feast days and all of us were part of that old covenant. And, and Paul continues to say, those can't save you now. And yet these people were that devoted to them. In fact, Paul would go on in 2 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 6, to call that, that old system that they were so devoted to that they would travel that kind of mileage. Paul called it the letter that kills, the ministry of death, and the ministry of condemnation in 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 9. Some of these people that would travel that far, on foot or by sea, by horseback maybe, caravan, they would travel that far. Some of them were surely as devout and devoted to the Old Testament law as Saul of Tarsus himself had been, as he tells us in Acts 22, 1 through 5, so deeply convicted of their religious beliefs that they might have killed for them, even as he did, according to Acts 26, 9 through 11. These people that made that journey were the very types that Paul would write about later in Romans chapter 10. When he said there in verse 2, they had a zeal for God. Hey, does it take a lot of zeal for God to travel 1,400 miles on foot to, to a weekly feast? It take a little zeal, you think? Yeah? A little devotion, a little commitment? Yeah? Leave your home for however long it takes? Because you've got to make that trip there and back. We're not talking 1434 two ways. We're talking one way, 2868. That's almost 3,000 miles for a weekly celebration because God said you've got to be there. That takes some devotion, yeah. Paul said, well, they're zealous, but they have no knowledge. They have a zeal for God, but it's not in accordance with knowledge. You see, here's the thing, brethren, that we've got to understand. As devoted as they were to what they believed, they did not know. They had a zeal for God, but not in accordance to knowledge. They did not know that Jesus Christ was the promised Old Testament Messiah who had come from God. These people did not know that on this day when Acts 2 begins. They did not know 
that he had nailed that old law and all of its feasts and festivities, Colossians 2, to the cross, that he had done away with all of that completely, Colossians 2.13. They did not know that when they showed up there that day. They did not know that Jesus Christ was the end of the old law that they so loved and were so devoted to, Romans 10 and verse 4. They did not know that he had done away with that old covenant or testament and had now established a new one, Hebrews 9, 15 through 17. That he had established a new one in his blood, Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 and 8. A new covenant, testament, or agreement in which their Old Testament feasts and sacrifices and celebrations, such as Passover and Pentecost, which they had traveled so far to celebrate, were simply now null, void, vain, useless, done away with religion. Hebrews chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10 will tell us that. So here's the question. This is the big question for the morning. How exactly, how exactly were men who were that devoted, that devout to such a now futile religious system, one the Apostle Paul would later call a ministry of death, how were they ever possibly, being that devout, going to come to the point that they understood and accepted the new way of eternal life that is found in Christ? How were they ever going to come to have the knowledge and understanding they needed in order to find the way? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. How were they ever going to get from where they were spiritually, not geographically, to where they needed to be physically. How is that even possible with somebody that's that committed? How are they going to do it? You know what the answer is? The answer is so simple, it escapes us. The answer is so profound, it escapes us. You know what the answer is? Two words for you. Bible study. That's it. Bible study. That's the answer. And that is the only way, the same way that those whose devotion today is similarly based on a fatal lack of knowledge can be turned around and brought to eternal life today. The same thing. Bible study. And I want to prove it to you. Look at me in Acts chapter 2. We know that, again, verses 1 through 4, the, the apostles had this sound like a mighty wind come upon them. The Holy Spirit, in a miraculous form, came upon them. They began to speak in other languages. And we know that when that happened, that people didn't understand what was going on. Verse 13, some said they're full of new wine. These guys are drunk. But Peter, verse 14 rather, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said, Men of Judea and all who dwelt in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. These men aren't drunk as you suppose. It's only the third hour of the day. Then what did Peter do? Peter took them to the scriptures. They didn't understand what was going on. 
They had no clue what, was, what this was, could possibly be about. And what Peter does in verses 16 through 21 is he takes them to the Old Testament scriptures. He takes them to the Bible. They have a Bible study. There was something they did not understand. And Peter said, let me tell you what this is. Look in your Bible. This is Old Testament. They knew this. New Testament wasn't written down yet. And so Peter has a Bible study with him, said, this is what's going on. Look in the scripture. Here's the answer. Here's what's going on. Bible study. In verses 22 through 24, it's right there in your own Bibles in Acts chapter 2. Peter goes on to tell him about this Jesus and how God raised him up. And, and then you know what Peter does? He has Bible study with him. He takes him right back to scripture and he said, hey, this shouldn't be any big surprise. This is exactly what the Bible says. For David himself says, verse 25, concerning him, and, and he goes through this, this whole thing here in Acts chapter 2, verses 22, um, verses 25 through 28, goes through this whole thing. He connects the dots for them biblically. That's what Bible study is. It's connecting the dots when people don't understand something, even devout religious people, when they don't understand something. Bible study is, is showing them what the scripture says word for word and connecting the dots, and that is exactly what Peter did. That is precisely what Peter did. In verses 29 through 36, he wraps up his sermon with these words. He says, men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David. They knew about David. They knew their Old Testament Bible. It's all they had. They knew it. That he is both dead and buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the, of the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, he would raise up the Christ to sit on his throne. He, foreseeing this, that is David, foreseeing this, spoke concerning the resurrection of the Christ, that his soul was not left in Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses. Remember, they'd spent 40 days with him. Tells us that in Acts 1. They saw the resurrected Christ. He says, therefore, verse 33 of Acts 2, being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. Here, Peter said, the Bible said this was going to happen. This is what's happening. He connected the dots. They had a Bible study. He says in verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens. But then he goes on to quote Bible to him again. His conclusion in verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Well, how are they going to know that? Well, they're going to know it because they just had a Bible study. Peter told them what the Bible said, and they knew it. Remember how devoted they were. You know, sometimes we say, well, that person is a staunch whatever. We could never reach them. You know how we sometimes say that? These people are about as staunch as it gets. They're about as devoted as you could come to a system that was no longer in effect, that Jesus had nailed to the cross. They just didn't know it. How were they going to know it? Two words for you, Bible study. What is the result when you teach people who are devoted to something, they're truly seeking God, but they don't have all the facts in hand to make the right decision, and you know they're devoted to something that's not biblical, that's not in effect, that's not right. How do you reach them? How do you turn those hearts, Bible study, 
That's how it happened then, that's how it happens now. Only as a result of Bible study. Look what happened. After Peter concluded in verse 36, these men who came from all these different places, when they heard this, verse 37, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what are we gonna do? Guess what? They understood now. Why? Because they had a Bible study. Peter had shown them how this all related to the Bible and what God had said, the God that they wanted to serve had said. And they said, what are we going to do now? Verse 38, Peter said to them, repent, which means turn around, turn away from your sinful life, turn towards God, repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission or forgiveness of your sins. That's what he said. He said, you've got a sin problem. You want to fix it, here's how you fix it. Well, how did they come to the idea that they were wrong? Well, because they had a Bible study. For the remission of your sins, you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises to you, your children, to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved. Notice they weren't saved yet. Notice they believed every word he said, but they still weren't saved. If belief alone could save you, then they would have been saved prior to this. But although they were cut to the heart, they were not yet saved. He said, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word, that is, those who believed the Bible study they just had, in all the scripture he had given them, in all the way he had applied it, they received his word, they were baptized. In that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them, and that's where they came from. But they didn't stop there. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Why? Because the apostles were teaching the Bible. They continued in Bible study and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness, simplicity of heart, <coughs> excuse me, heart, praising God, having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Isn't God awesome? God added to the church daily those who were being saved. Well, how were they being saved? Well, they were being saved the way that Peter had explained to them up there in verses 37 through 41. He continued to study the Bible with them, and so they were saved God's way through obeying God's word. And brethren, this is why we need to study the Bible with people. We talk about devoted. <clears throat> A few questions. How many people today in our world are totally convinced that saying and continuing to say some unrecognizable gibberish is a sign they have the Holy Spirit or that they're saved. How many people believe that? You know why? They believe it because they don't know what the Bible says in Acts chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 and other places. And here's the question. How are they ever going to know what the Bible says if no one ever has a Bible study with them and shows them what God said about that? Romans 10, 14 through 17. Another question. How many people today in our world are absolutely and thoroughly convinced that the miraculous instantaneous gifts of the Holy Spirit are still in effect today? Millions, why? Simple, because they don't know what the Bible says in 1 Corinthians. Chapter 13, 
verses 8 through 12 and other places. Question, how are they ever going to if no one ever has a Bible study with them and shows them what God said about that? How many today in this world believe that instrumental music in the church, in our worship music accompaniment, is acceptable to God? Millions. Why? Because they don't know what the Bible says in Romans 15, 8 and 9, Ephesians 5, 19, Colossians 3, 16, and a host of other verses. And how are they ever going to know if nobody ever sits down and has a Bible study with them and shows them what God said? Here's one for you. How many people gathered last Sunday? Good, convicted, devout, religious people gathered last Sunday, went, went to services, devoutly convicted that what they were doing for Easter Sunday was biblical. When Easter has absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. Why would they do that? Well, the answer is pretty simple. Because they don't know what the Bible says in Acts 12, verse 4, Acts 20, verse 7, and others. And how are they ever going to if nobody ever has a Bible study with them? Here's the last one for you, and there's many that could be listed. I'm skipping one, in fact, that I have written down. How many deeply, devoutly, militantly believe in our world today that they were saved by faith only, either before or without being buried with him in the waters of Christian baptism for the forgiveness of their sins, as scripture says they were saved in Acts chapter 2, verses 37 through 47. Again, they were cut to the heart in verse 38. They believed every word he'd said. We gotta, what are we going to do? We've got to be saved. What are we going to do to make this right? They were cut to the heart. They believed. But as he goes on to preach to them, he tells them, be saved. So they weren't saved just by their belief. And, and they're told what to do. Peter told them in, in verse 38 what to do. And they went on to do that. Why? There's no prayer there. There's no just simply believing. How many people, brethren, how many people today, and don't answer me out loud, I, I know, but how many people today in our world are devoutly, devotedly, deeply committed to the fact that they think they were saved by faith only? Do you know why that is? That is because they do not know what the Bible says in places like Matthew 28, 18 through 20, Mark 16, 15 and 16, John 3, Acts 2, 38 through 41, Acts 22, 16, Romans 6, Galatians 3, 1 Peter 3, 21. You know why this sermon is deeply intense for me? I'll tell you why. Because I was one of those. I was one of those people who believed and had been told that you are saved simply by believing. Thought for a number of years I was okay with God. Then somebody said, hey, do you know what the Bible says about that? Well, no, I didn't have to. Somebody told me. I'm paraphrasing. Somebody had a Bible study with me. My soul was saved, not because I'm smarter or better or any of those things, but simply because I obeyed God. 
did what he said to be saved, and he tells us right there in Acts chapter 2, and the same thing happened to these people who were devoutly committed to what they believed. Listen, how are those people today that believe in faith alone ever going to, ever going to understand what the scriptures say and that that won't save anybody unless somebody goes and has a Bible study with them? They're not going to. They're going to die in their sins. And that's not what Jesus came to accomplish. He came to seek and to save the lost. And therefore, it's up to us to go to them, brethren. The same way Peter did here, it's up to you and me to study the Bible with people. It is in this light, and with our elders' full and hearty approval, that I mention to you the following. We all know that each October, that house to house has a door knocking. A door knocking where we go and we get to share the Bible with people. And so that's good, but it's only once a year. Why wait? So we're not going to wait. I'm going to ask you to mark your calendars now. We've tried to get past all the things that are going on right now, and there's a lot of things going on right now. But pull out your cell phone, make sure it's on silence, put this on your calendars, write it down, do what you have to do. You'll hear more about it later, but this is really, 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 really important. Saturday, June the 11th, from 9 to noon, we're going to go knock some doors. It's easy to remember. We all remember the emergency, 911, right? 911, right? Flip the 9 upside down. 611 is our new emergency. That's when we're going to go knock doors, 611. Now, what if you look on your calendar and you go, aha, well, I can't do that. June 11th, I'm doing this. That's okay, because we're going to do it a little different this year. We're going to have a hybrid version. We're going door knocking from 9 to noon, only 9 to noon. We're not going to try to do the whole town. We need more time to set up Bible studies and stuff, so we're not going to try to do the whole town. Probably start in Shoto Hill. If that goes really well and we have the whole church involved, we might even go to uh, this side of the tracks and other places. We'll probably start in Shoto Hills. We're only going to go 9 to noon, so you'll have that, that afternoon free. And if you're already busy on June the 11th on 611, our new emergency, what we're going to do is make it available for anybody thereafter over the next couple of weeks to come see me. If you've got a night and you just want to go for a walk, okay? Come see me and I'll give you some stuff to hand out and you can go walk whatever territory we didn't get covered on June 11th. If you want to go up there and you just want something to do for an evening, we can go one or two couples at a time, right? We can put our family unit, put three people together and just go knock a few doors. You may only do one street. I'll assign you one street if there's one left after we all get together and go June 11th. So if you can't make it on the 11th, there's still plenty of opportunities. And this is how it's going to work. You know what we're out to do that day? Two words for you. <laughs> we're out to establish Bible studies. That's what we're out to do. And, and this is kind of the way that, that it's set up to work. If you go door to door, you're going to have two resources. Number one is going to be something about the size of our visitor's card. Number two is going to be church bookmarks. It's really that simple. That's all there is to it. Church bookmarks, little card. We're going to knock on people's doors and say something to this effect. Hello, I'm from the Church of Christ down on the corner of North Cherokee and East 8. And we are out today looking for anyone who might be interested in having a personal Bible study in order to answer any questions that they have straight out of God's Word. 
If the person says, I'm not interested, then we're going to say, well, I'll tell you what. Here's a bookmark. If you get interested or you'd like to contact us to come see what we're all about, here's our information. Have a great day. Simple as that. If they say, I got a question. Yeah, I, I might be interested. Then we're going to have them make out the little card, which will simply have their name, address, phone number on it, and we'll tell them somebody will get in touch with them, and we'll give them a bookmark anyway. See the bookmark? Everybody gets a bookmark, right? We got all kind. We got a lot of bookmarks in there to get rid of. Okay. But our purpose is going to be to set up Bible studies. And of course, this would be a great opportunity for children, grandchildren, teenagers to mentor them. Listen, when some of us who are my age or close to my age are gone, some of our young men and women are going to have to know how to knock doors, what to say. They're going to have to not be afraid of it, like it's the big boogeyman that's going to get them if they go door knocking, because we hope for that they will be in church for the next, you know, 70, 80 years till the Lord takes them home, and, and they're going to, this is good training for them, so we need to take them, each and every one, with us to show them how it's done, to, to show them this isn't something to be afraid of. We're also going to need volunteers come that time for people that will do an in-home Bible study. I do not meet with ladies alone. None of you men should. It's not a good thing in today's world. Don't do it. So we're going to need some ladies to sign up to have home Bible studies with, a, with another single lady or another lady by herself representing her family unit. We're going to need couples. We're going to need some men. But that will all come later. I just What I want you to do this morning is understand this. There are good people out there who want to go to heaven. Like these Jews on the day of Pentecost, they're devoted, they're devout to what they believe, but there's things they don't know. There's things they don't know, like there's things I didn't used to know. I thought I was okay with God, and I wasn't. And they need to know, because if they know, they'd respond. And the only way they're going to know, Acts 2, our favorite chapter when it comes to the church, because it's where the church was established and everything is set up. Acts chapter 2 is all about Bible study. That's how those people were converted, even as devout as they were. There's work to do. The invitation today is simply this. Maybe you're here, and, and again, I, I appreciate our, our guests and our visitors. Maybe you're here as a guest and a visitor, and some of the things I've said, you've kind of gone, huh? That's okay. That's okay. That's good. That's good. Maybe if that's you, you'd like a Bible study. There are all kinds of people here who Bible study with you. Amen, church? Okay. If you've heard something that you go, I, I don't know about that. We're only here trying to, trying to see what God says and go by it. Simple as that. Nobody spin on it, nobody, just what the Bible says. <clears throat> so please indicate to me on your visitor's card on the way out if you'd like a Bible study. We'll set you up to do that with, with a member of the church here. If you're here this morning, you've already studied and you've looked at Acts chapter 2 and you've said to yourself, wow. They were baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. That's what they were told they had to do to be saved from this perverse generation. And, and that's what they did. And, and I need to do that. I've never been baptized specifically for the forgiveness of my sin. I was baptized as a baby, or I was sprinkled, or I was baptized after I thought, whatever. We're here today. And if you'd like to study that more, we'll study with you. But if 
Thirdly, you are somebody who just needs more strength to go and do the work. I guess I should point up there, you can't see that one. Do the work. We'll pray for you, but I'm asking the men who lead us in this congregation over the next few months, please, keep it ever before us in prayer when you lead those prayers about June 11th that we can find people that devoutly want to follow God and we can study with them like Peter did and show them what the Bible says, connect the dots and bring them home to Jesus. If you have a need this morning for any of those things, will you please come to the front as we stand and sing?